I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's great to be here on the day of publication um, for Through the Billboard Promised Land, written by Derek Charm, his first and only piece of prose fiction, uh, published for the very first time here. Um, thanks to the wonderful Jess Chandler, who's in the room. Jess Chandler, let's give her a big round of applause. Thank you very much. And... We should, of course, know, many of you will have seen the book already. It's officially published today, but it has been circling in Samizdat copies up until um, earlier today. Uh, many of you will have seen the wonderful design, for which huge thanks to Theo Inglis, who's also in the room. Theo, thank you very much indeed. Incredible, incredible scenes here. Now, on this day, of course, we are marking um, the, uh, the, the year in which Derek Jarman would have been 80, a huge loss, but a figure whose influence, of course, pervades the culture in the best possible way and across the culture and across media in ways that I don't need to tell any of you who are here tonight. But we are delighted, of course, to be marking uh, this publication date with an incredible panel of, uh, of talents and people strategically placed in the auditorium to also respond at key moments. Not just you, the wonderful audience, for which many thanks for your attendance, but other people as well in the audience who are currently the audience but will reveal themselves shortly to be something more than an audience member, if that's possible to be. Now, it's going to rain probably during the course of the evening. It's been raining heavily this week, of course, um, and in recent weeks. We thank, obviously, we thank the skies for the rain, but sometimes the rain comes down so much that it's raining on top of rain, as Philip said um, about Southampton last night. So much rain that when we leave, it will probably be raining. And it reminds me of observations that people have made elsewhere. Um, people working together. Uh, let's call the person Bill, should we say. And let's say, that, let's say that Terry notices that Bill's unhappy. And Bill has been really depressed since the rain's been going on for two or three days, just staring through the window. The weather's really getting to him. So Terry thinks, well, I guess if it's still raining tomorrow, I'd better let him in then. So that's, that's a joke. That's a joke. Obviously, it takes a little while to get to the back of the room there, clearly. Ripple effect. Sound travels much slower than light, clearly. Um, that's a joke thanks to Influx Press, uh, wonderful independent press. I don't claim any credit for it. And actually, I excuse myself for it now, given how badly it landed. Anyway, that's enough about the weather. We're going to think about a very different kind of weather, an incredible creative weather here uh, tonight. Um, through the Billboard Promised Land, of course, a title that's taken on a different resonance, arguably, for some sectors of the population. Of course, in 2016, we were arguably passing through their version of the Billboard Promised Land, of course, as we heard about £350 million a week returning to the NHS, of course. Um, that was a billboard, that was a kind of promised land, but it's a very different one from the one that Derek Jarman explores in his incredible text, which you will hear about from our wonderful uh, panellists very shortly. We are turning this text 
um, which, of course, you will very uh, shortly hear, read by Derek Jarman himself, into a limited edition cassette, very shortly, care of Purge, the record label, Purge.xxx, you will find it online, a limited edition cassette, for those of you who still know what they are, of course, the older members of the audience will... Uh, behind thinking back fondly to the days of mixtapes when mixtapes really did mean mixtapes. Uh, cassette limited edition will be coming out shortly. This conversation will be a podcast next Wednesday, so please do tell people who can't make it here and who haven't made it here, in fact, um, that they can listen to it again, as can you, of course, with your own questions, which will come after the conversation on stage. There will be conversations aplenty, of course, about this, questions, comments, responses, and you will be directing them, I hope, with great vigour and enthusiasm shortly. Now, we will be hearing in about 20 seconds Derek Jarman reading the opening uh, uh, of his wonderful text through the Billboard Promised Land um, himself, and then it will go straight into our extraordinary host, Somaya, poet, writer, activist, who will be taking us through the evening with her wonderful panellist, Declan Whiffen, the scholar at the heart of Through the Billboard Promised Land, uncovering incredible details about the uh, original text and its relationship to the larger body of work that is Derek Jarman's. Visionary Forward by Philip Hoare, who needs no introduction to LRB shop audiences, of course. Philip, uh, a poetic sort of allyship in his text as he travels through the uh, lyrical implications of the text. And as I said earlier, promising you activity from the floor, Michael Ginsburg, who has direct and extended lived experience of living with Derek um, on the banks of the River Thames in the 60s and 70s, will be bringing his own inimitable memoir to us very shortly. But before all of that, let's please now enjoy Derek Jarman reading the opening of Through the Billboard Promised Land. Thank you very much. Through the Billboard Promised Land, without ever stopping, if you like. Once upon a time in Fargo, caught between the one-armed bandits and the peppermint machines for the disabled, a high white villa was built to a perfectly comfortable design. A long white drive lined with tall cedar trees, perfectly still in the early morning sunlight, led up to a colonnade newly painted, and above this a tympanum with sculpture depicting the good deeds of the owner in pale pastel colours. The villa stood on the side of a long low hill, on the top of which a row of electric pylons had been gilded with pure gold leaf. At that high latitude, the sun rose at midnight, and as the clock struck twelve, a slight breeze rustled the white net curtains and bent the tall green cedar trees. The sun peeped above the hill and sent long, trembling shadows across the garden. The wind stopped. It was perfectly silent. If you climb the eighty steps to the portico, you will find yourselves in white rooms of perfect proportion and geometry. The clock strikes twelve. A breeze blows the net curtains, and a swallow flies in. He circles the room you have just entered three times and flies out again. The room is empty, except for a large divan with curious and rare coverlets, supported by four silver dancing girls, automata of a perfection beyond description, who silently fan a young king in his sleep. The last chime dies away, and the young king stirs in his sleep, stretches his arms, yawns, and is awake. 
It is always like this, the young king thought. Here in Fargo nothing changes. The sun always rises at the twelve strokes of midnight, and a silent breeze flutters the curtains. He sat up in bed, and at once the four silver dancing girls started to sing a fresh morning song, as wonderful as the nightingale, but more mysterious. And then, at the moment the song ended, the door opened, and the king's valley came in, and they walked arm in arm down to the swimming pool to take their morning bath. John said the king, I am young and blind, and here in Fargo nothing changes, so today we will go on a journey with no destination. We will make no plans further than the end of the drive with the cedar trees, and you will lead me. We will leave this villa, which has been built to a perfectly comfortable design, where the lawns are green and nothing changes. And saying this, he swam once more round the swimming pool, which was filled with fishy water, by the way, and walked slowly back to his room. The silver dancing girls had already started to issue orders for the journey, to prepare the golden car and the picnic hampers, but the king stopped them and said, Bandage my legs and arms, because I will go on this journey a poor beggar, and John will lead me. And so dressed as a simple beggar, the beautiful blind king was led by John down the long drive, leaving the perfectly comfortable villa behind. And as it turned out, no plans further than the end of the drive were possible, for the plain stretched so far that the horizon was in darkness, and down through the centre ran the superhighway, with its sodium lamp still burning in the pale blue dawn, and straight in front of them was a large sign which read, Toute Direction. John looked round, but there was no other landmark in this plain, and nothing moved in the quietness. The only change was the increasing blue of the sky as the sun came up, and the dark corners of the plain gradually receded, and then when the horizon itself seemed to disappear, the lights on the superhighway went out. But the young king saw none of this, for he was blind, and seizing John's hand he said, We will turn our backs to the sun and walk into the dark. That is the signpost we should follow. Extraordinary experience mm -hmm. hearing that, especially this close to the thinning of the veil mm. at All Souls Day. Yeah. Um, so thank you to Jess and Gareth of House Barrow Press for this invocation and revivication. And I'm very pleased to be um, here. I'm So Mayor. I worked with Jess on prototypes and republication of a finger in the fish's mouth, which Declan has remembered to bring, and I haven't, um, which features the title of this book on its back cover. Mm -hmm. So we will be investigating the connections between these extraordinary works and that go across the work of Derek Jarman, I'm sure many of you know it from many angles, and I think that will be part of the richness uh, of this conversation. I will be asking a few questions and then going to Michael, uh, as Gareth said, and then coming to all of you. Um, and I'll just begin by introducing uh, my panelists and contributors to the book. And noting that Philip Hall and Declan Whiffen, your work meets in a shared interest in queer culture and the natural world or the outdoor world. We don't really have a good word for it, but um, <laughs> the world. The world. Um, in 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 you you um, Philip, you co-curated an exhibition called Derek Jarman's Modern Nature, and Declan, you ran the workshop Cruising Nature. Cruising Nature. Cruising Nature. Yeah. So I think we can see. 
a productive overlap there and even hearing just the first few minutes of this that encounter with the endless plane and the super highway this very different kind of world so as uh, many of you here will know Philip's books include biographies of Stephen Tennant and Noel Coward um, Wild's Last Stand and England's Lost Eden his book Spike Island was chosen by W.G. Sebald as his book of the year for 2001 Leviathan or comma the whale won the 2009 BBC Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction. I'm a big fan of that 18th Thank century you. comma placement. Um, and it was followed by The Sea Inside and Rising Tide, Falling Star, all one word. Albert and the whale led the New York Times to call the author a forceful weather, forceful weather system of his own, as Gareth said. Derek Drummond's Modern Nature was at John Hansard Gallery in 2021 in Southampton. And he co-curates two podcasts, Moby Dick, Big Read, a title to read carefully, <laughs> and Ancient Mariner, Big Read. So the, the sea is inside with us this evening, which I think is great, very much in German spirit as well. And Declan Whiffen joins us from Kent, the county of Dungeness. Um, at the University of Kent, he's a lecturer in contemporary literature and critical theory. Um, and the editor of Litmus, the Lycan edition, a magazine exploring the intersection of science, poetry, art, and lichen. You'll be shocked to hear. And as well as Cruising Nature, he organized the writing workshop Cruising the Estuary. He's a collaborator on the Unfiltered Coast, which is an arts project working with young people to engage them around climate change. And his pamphlet, Indiscriminate Lanking, was published by Invisible Hand Press. So lots to investigate after this, and you can see why Declan and Philip were such ideal contributors, and in some ways, I want to say the caryatids of this project, of <laughs> this project. And in some ways, you're, you're also the, the amplifiers or the transmitters that bring this project to us, and I'm just curious, what was it like for you to encounter this the first time? We all have your words to come through, but how did you come to it? So I came to it very, very quickly um, because <laughs> I, well, let me, let me start before coming to it quickly. Um, I heard, I'd read about it in Tony Peake's biography of Derek Jarman, which many of you probably have as well, which is here. I've brought all of the resources um, and, and kind of, you know, noted it and then hadn't really remembered it. And then it kind of cropped up again when I was reading Dancing Ledge, which was Jarman's first um, autobiographical work. And then listening to, listening to you, so, in the podcast, talking about um, A Finger in the Fish's Mouth, and I never really, I kind of noted this maybe in the biography, but hadn't really ever got my hands on it or been able to see it. So when you said that there was a copy in the British Library, which I didn't know about, um, went over to visit. And not only is it, is it inscribed on the back here in Derek's kind of very distinctive handwriting, the phrase, the billboard promised land, crops up in about three or four of the poems. And it made me think... Why is no, where, this story is mentioned in the biography. I'm sure somebody is doing something about it, and I will be very interested to find out who that is. Um, and that turned out to be Jess Chandler. <laughs> so I emailed Tony Peake, who was very generous. I don't know if Tony Peake is here tonight, but he was very generous in, um, in saying, oh, it's in the archive. 
Um, and in the way that you know, the best research is collaborative, um, a friend uh, and colleague, Alexandra Parsons, then kind of pointed me in the right direction. I don't know if Alexandra is here either. Um, and got in touch with Jess, who um, had talked to Keith Collins um, about publishing the story. So that was how I kind of came to find out that it even existed, probably in a similar way to, to many people through Tony Peake's biography. And then following that, I tried to get a slot at the BFI down at the South Bank to go and, to go and visit. And they were super, super helpful. Um, Storm Patterson was, was brilliant. Um, but you only have a very short time. <laughs> it's kind of like you can have like 10 till two or something, 10 till three. It's kind of a short time. And, and I was quite new to like archival work. My research before hadn't... I'd, I didn't know what I was doing, basically, and um, it was in different. It was in different sections. So I started to read the first notebook and thought I found it. Started to make a transcription that was in Derek Jarman's handwriting, which was quite difficult to read, um, and it didn't always make sense. And my transcription, looking back, was really, really terrible. But then realized that there was yet another notebook, and then two typed versions. But my time was running out, so coming back to the experiencing the story very, very quickly for the first time, there was kind of a fever of thinking, I've got to read this, I've got to take it in, I've got to try and see, because if I, I won't be able to get another appointment at the archive for, for months. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's something of the story which is very quick and has that speed to it, which we might talk about later. Um, but I think that did influence the way I experienced it. You kind of the, the kind of institutional confines, the fact that it wasn't really available, feeling a kind of sense of what is this about? And mm. yeah, it was a kind of fever dream experience of reading a story about a type of fever dream. And Philip, what, how, what's your experience you know, coming to this story? Uh, yeah, it was very exciting. I mean, Partly because I've um, been working with Amanda Wilkinson, who's here tonight, who represents Derek's estate, and the um, John Hansard Gallery in Southampton on the Modern Nature exhibition, which we did in conjunction with the Manchester, the big Manchester mm. show. Um, so there's, you know, my nephew, who's you know, 18, and there's such a groundswell of interest in Derek now, which is really interesting. And I think it's really interesting for people old people like me, I mean, I knew Derek a little bit. I mean, I met him and, and, uh, and had sort of those things to do, but uh, uh, it's so amazing. Mm. And I think he would be so excited. <laughs> no, uh, James Mackay said um, he had to eventually install an answer phone, which was unusual for the early 70s because Derek would ring up at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I've got to do this. You know, and, and, um, but yeah, so, but my interest in Derek uh, was really strengthened um, during, um, during his lifetime uh, was, was the publication of Modern Nature, which really brought a whole new lens on Derek and this whole hinterland, which I hadn't really been aware of. I came into, I mean, I first knew about Derek and Sebastian, which was scary and shocking, you know, for a suburban boy from Southampton, which I still am, and it still is scary and shocking. And then I went to college in London in 1976, and, um, and a friend of mine, uh, I was doing a fanzine. Everyone was doing a fanzine then. But I was doing a fanzine, and a friend of mine brought me the script. He said, look, do you want to write about this in your fanzine? And also, do you want to part? There's an, you know, be in it, you know. And I read the script, I thought it was utterly ludicrous. And I said, I can't even write about it, let alone want to be an extra. And it was Jubilee. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, and so then, and then, uh, because I was working in music in the eighties, in fact, I commissioned Derek to make a make a, a video about one of our artists. It ended up that Derek was overall director, but Kareth Wynne Evans ended up directing it. And then, because I was friends with um, 
Neil Tennant, um, and their really interesting relationship with Derek. And I, so th th those things were really interesting to me, almost more than the films mm. in a way. Um, and the, the idea of what Derek was like as a maker um, in, an, in an age which is really, I and mean, it seems extraordinary now, but how analog culture was until very, very recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what's really now struck me, having you know, worked with Amanda, um, uh, with James McKay and, and Howard Sudi especially, is really to think about Derek's uh, relationship to the land. And, and Declan brings this out really beautifully in your, in your essay in the book, which is such a wonderful essay. And for me... We, when we were curating Modern Nature, a friend of mine um, said, uh, a friend of mine, it's a mutual friend, um, was working for some people in Bath and they found three Derek Jarmans in the attic. Uh, one of them was this picture. Because we oh don't goodness. have a techno technological... I'll show them that, but I'll hand them round so you can have a look. So this picture was made, we only now realise, same time as he was writing the billboard Promised Land, it's called Picnic. And then in the description to it, 26th of January, plans for a picnic. It doesn't tell you where it's set. And when you look at the work that Derek, and this is 66, this is just after the slate, um, the work that he's doing there is really quite utopian, pro producing these utopian landscapes. Uh, and in fact, the Picnic, which was also a play that he was making, is mentioned in the, the same journal as he's writing through the Bill so anyway, there's a whole sort of connectivity, which for me, it's really interesting. When you put Derek against the, de the, the exploded city in which he was living in, mm. the, the city which was a wasteland. I mean, I came to London in 76, you know, and, and like Howard Sooley and both James McKay were saying, you could walk into buildings in central London and make yourself at home. Mm. You know, Bankside, Upperground, all those. I mean, they were just derelict, you know. So uh, Michael Bracewell writes about this really beautiful in Souvenir, his book about the 80s and 90s in London, how, how revolutionary that seems about central London. So you have that kind of hub where Derek is sort of creating, but then you have his hinterland of the Dorset where he was born, you know, Dancing Ledge, as you mentioned, Declan, that, um, the way that influenced him and the fact that one of his great artist heroes was Paul Nash, that painting is really derived from elements of Paul Nash's work. And then, of course, Paul Nash was inspired William Blake. So there becomes this sort of non-genealogical connection that you follow back through Jarman, through Nash, through Blake, through visionaries. I mean, James Norton, who was here, who was associate producer on The Garden and Edward II, he, was just, he just used that word of Derek, visionary. And that's, it's an amazing thing to be able to say about an artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know uh, the fact that someone who I met can suddenly be now in the perspective of where we're sitting now in this terrible, horrible world, which seems to be. And you know, he talks about climate crisis in modern nature. How extraordinary and how important it is that we're here thinking about about him. I want to come back to the point about the utopian and the visionary. But I also want to think about what this year, 1972, for Derek Jarman, as you say, that everything is going on. There's painting, there's poetry, there's fiction. Um, there's his first Super 8 films, Declan, as, as you write about these, this excavation of these early works. Um, this 
all coming out of this extraordinary encounter of this road trip uh, through the US and of navigating these different genres that he's already working in. He's making <laughs> set designs for theater and opera. He's taking photographs, he's painting. And I'm just, I'm really um, fascinated by this, <clears throat> let's call it interpenetration. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm looking for a word that isn't about fertilization. So let's yeah. call it, you know, now might say hybridity, but it's mm. British British arts culture has generally been very siloed. Mm. And Derek is someone who just mm. ran across mm. all those boundaries mm. looking for what was interesting. But mm. it's obviously, as you're reading this, you can feel coming to film. He's writing about movie land, Hollywood, the mm. ultimate dream, the fairy tale of the 20th century. Mm. Declan, you pick up on this phrase, phrase of poetry of fire. Mm that runs through all these art forms. So I just wonder, can we talk a bit about this creative explosion of 1972 and how it's happening across all of these art forms? What, mm. What's going on? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I think just a little bit, of, I think to build on, to build on that, that, the story kind of emerges in like two places in, in his life. So after, so he goes to America, um, has a great time, goes to meet his first lover, Ron Wright, and then, and comes up with this phrase, the billboard promised land, has lots of experiences which are both new. He's kind of coming out of like post-war 50s Britain and America is like this draw and lots of artists have gone there. And when he gets back, he's been writing poetry along the way, some of which makes it into a finger in the fish's mouth. Yeah. And this phrase, um, through the billboard promised land, then appears as like two different types of play um, in very, very note form. They're not really... They're not really complete. And at one point, he just says at the top of a page, like, jettison everything that came before as though it's, like, mm. rubbish. Mm. And, you know, he had this kind of, like, throwaway attitude towards some mm. of his work. You know, this was lost in the archive for a long time. And not that he threw it away, but... So it emerges then after America. And then he goes on and does various things, and which maybe Philip can fill us in with. And then, um, and then it comes up again in 71, um, just after he's finished, I think just after he's finished working on The Devils, it's done well, but I get the sense from um, Tony Peake's biography that he didn't maybe get the kind of acclaim that he was hoping for as a designer, and he made a decision that he was, he was going to pursue his own path, pursue his own journey through his own artistic practice, mm -hmm. rather than just working with a just working for other people. And this was obviously in a, like, a collaborative, collaborative way. Um, so then he, he kind of goes back to this idea, hasn't disappeared, and he, and he writes this, in the, there's two amber notebooks in the archive and there's two like, typed copies. And he, so he's obviously worked on that you know, quite a bit to think about putting ideas back from 64, 65 into something that he's working on five years later, which I find like really interesting and really encouraging that you could write something and then five years later you could think, oh yeah, I'm going to go back to that and mm. like pick it up again. I don't know if I answered your question. About the collaborative, the um, interpenetrary, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to make you say that word. Um, That's fine. So then in 71, He's stopped kind of thinking he's going to necessarily work on other people's work, although he does in 72 and 73. Um, but he um, picks up a camera. It's actually a 16 millimeter that he makes um, electric ferry on. And I think, 
I don't know him in person, but Mark Turner very helpfully put me in touch with James McKay, who um, mm. allowed me to watch Electric Fairy, which is mm. amazing, and mm. everybody, it should be available to everybody. Um, because he makes that at the same time that he's writing through the Billboard Promised mm. Land. And then he goes on to make... Journey to Avery. Yeah. And at low tide. Yeah, he goes on to make a whole series of other, other films. And I guess what I was interested in when I looked back through Dancing Ledge was that he collages memories of making these um, Super 8 films, and, that, and he writes Dancing Legend 84, I'm gonna say? I yeah. think it's 84. Um, and then he collages um, yeah, memories of making these Super 8s. He said, we've done, um, I think it's the, um, uh, the, not the Hall of Mirrors, the Art of Mirrors. Yeah. And he says, we've done something new for the first time. And he's like super excited. Mm. And then after that, there's like a collage section from Through the Billboard Promised Land. Mm. And it's and you can see there that not only was he working on these things at the same time, but he thought they had a correlation. That there was this cinematic, filmic imagery of scene after scene after person after person after object after object, which you can see in, um, uh, you know, in your mind's eye as you read the story. And Philip says in his piece that you know you can almost hear like the whir of the the film in the camera as you read because everything is moving so quickly from thing to thing, in the style that he made Super Eight. So. Yeah, I was, that kind of focused me on that kind of poetry of fire to think about how was he thinking about writing as a poetry of fire, even if it was prose and language, alongside his actual filmic practice, which was just emerging mm. and, and like took off just after he kind of finished writing the story. And also, because the, um, for me, when you read that story, I mean, I'm, you are sitting in the Bieber Rainbow Room, you know, and the, the language is of that time of the pop art stroke glamour associations, you know, which is it's, it's, the American thing is Lichtenstein and Warhol. I mean, Brian Dillon says Warhol is really forgotten sometimes in the German story and how important he is as a, as a, as a, as a pattern, you know. Even to the, the idea of having this gang of people, you know, like the way John Waters has his Dreamlanders and... Mm. Jarman, you know, has this extraordinary, he always has this kind of crew. Mm. So that language, and, you know, it is like driving Saturday in Virginia Plain, you know, somewhere on, this, on the desert plain, you know, my Studebaker wakes me. Mm. And all, all that sort of throwing together of very sexy, you know, uh, Americanisms, which seems so, such an antidote to the way Britain looked at that time. But then also mixed with this Blakeian vision, this prophecy, you know, the Blakeian fluidity of Blake's bodies and uh, transforming, um, shape-shifting, um, playing with gender, playing with species. And, and then at the same time that, that you know, Derek finds, there's this American art student called Mark Ballard who comes across and he's, he's trying to get a job. He's been training, he's been training with RISD, but... In, in Rome as an architect. He comes to London, he's wanting a job, and someone tells you, he goes for a job at Sadler's Wells, and someone says, no, but you should, you should talk to Derek Jarman, he's the Andy Warhol of London. Mm -hmm. And he rings him up, and actually it's he who gives Derek his first soap break yeah. for a camera. Mm -hmm. uh, and they all go off down to Dorset, to Dancing, well, it's not Dancing Ledge, it's actually Winsprit, I was there last week. And the Dorset coast, which is so important to Derek. I mean, you can, that's why, you know, and his relationship to modern nature, you know, that's, mm. when you go to Dorset, you realise how, and it's a very queer place, you know, it's a very transmutative place. It's a, a shifting landscape. It has this dominant military presence, yeah. 
um, which that is Derek's antecedents. I mean, he, he grew up on military bases, you yeah, know. And Dungeness. And Dungeness yeah. later on, mm. of course. It's that, so they go down, they have their road trip, their road trip. They go off from, from Bankside, Andrew Logan, who brings along a, a wind-up gramophone with only one record, which is Land of Hope and Glory. <laughs> um, uh, two really very beautiful Danish people, um, a couple, Louise and Ernst Benthe, um, later on became very arch- architects in their own right, uh, and a young man we only know by Ian. No one can tell us who Ian's surname is. And they come on this road trip, go down to Dorset, and so they're going to film this film at low tide, which is one of the films you're talking about. Um, it's really interesting how those films, he's making them in landscape, like Journey to Avebury, Corf, the mm. Corf film, uh, the film on Fire Island. You know, yeah. he's, all, he's much more, for someone who's living in the city all his life, you know, he's much more, he's this film's this really, and so they arrive and they go down, because Corf, uh, Winsprit, where they're going to make this film, because Derek must have known it from his, from his use, is a series of quarried caves on a sea cliff, very, quite high above the sea, but then goes down to a little cove. And um, they arrive there, so they're all going to spend the night in the cove, and the plan is to film the next, next morning. And they're really, really uncomfortable, you know, because you have to walk quite a long way from the car. You can't carry beds. They brought one bit of foam, I think, to share with them. Um, luckily, Mark Ballett's mother has been sending him monthly supplies of uh, mandrax, um, <laughs> which they hand round. Uh, and then they go to sleep, and it's terrible. You know, there's a storm all night, and they wake up like bleary-eyed, you know, zoned out walking out and, and this the mist is so thick the sea the rain is so thick there's no possibility of filming anything uh luckily derek um knows what's the name of the publisher sorry can you um, um, better compares yeah better compares but the guy who ran it um uh, God, I've forgotten his name now it's michael anyway i can't remember his name but anyway so he so the guy who's published this who i think had a relationship with derek is living in a in a grand in a grand house, grand Jacobean house called Betterscombe, no which Jasper Conran now lives in. Um, and so Derek says, because he's feeling guilty having dragged these beautiful people down from London and shown them basically a quarry uh, 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 and a lot of rain. And uh, so he takes them to Betterscombe, which is his house, and it's a haunted house as a, a screaming skull, which the uh, Michael the, shows them. Uh, and then um, their fellow guest is Iris Murdoch, for fuck's sake. I mean, it's just a brilliant scene. And she takes them up to a standing stone, and they all dance around this stone three times to get good vibes for the filming. Um, and it just cut along so sure they make the film, they have to come back next. And the film is... Utterly beautiful. I'm sort of plugged my view. I, this, so I've got another book out today. Congratulations. <laughs> if you want to look at this, it has, it's got um, stills from the film. It's, I really hope that you can get to see it in some way because it's such... And the thing about what you say, Declan, in your intro, intro is, is, the, is the, and what we, we were just saying just now before we came on, is the way the films, those Super 8 films, James was saying it, uh, they are objects in themselves. They are objects of, of almost worship in a way, you know, because the because of the ad hoc way they were made, like the journey to Avebury, all those films that they kind of they quiver. Mm. It's as so Derek is too excited in a way, mm. and there's a really it's that adolescence energy of Derek Jarman, you know, even when he was dying, you know, I was talking to him in heaven. I'd already written his obituary, and, so, and he was still had the energy of a sixteen year old, you mm-hmm. know. 
But, um, but yeah. Feels like a good moment to hear some more stories from the time. If Michael Ginsburg, who is here with us, is ready to share. Um, and Michael is himself uh, an artist, and he's exhibited very extensively since 1970. You can read the full wonderful list in his bio to see just the range uh, and presence he's had. Um, and he's also, he worked in fine art education until 2003. And his essay in this collection, for me, really exemplifies the best of teaching. It's an intergenerational sharing about how to make artwork and community together. And I was hoping, Michael, you might share a bit now. I don't know whether you've been prompted by Philip talking about the impact of American artists or so many of those details that might be awakening memories for you. So I come at it from a different angle. I was fortunate enough to meet Derek in 1962. Uh, I was not an artist at that point in time. I was a medical student. <laughs> and Derek was at King's reading a general arts degree because his father had said, he already had a, uh, a place at the Slade, and his father had said, you're not going to an art school until you've got a proper degree. So he was reading a very interesting general degree, history of art and architecture, and what else? Three subjects, English and history, which is, sounds to me like a really nice degree. <laughs> and he loved it, and he was immersed in it. Uh, and we met editing the college magazine. We both were contributors to it. So it's very interesting. There was this guy, and we've just been hearing about energy. And when people say to me, gosh, you knew Derek. What was he like? I say, what he had was extraordinary energy. <laughs> and it's difficult to explain because lots of people have extraordinary energy. And even if only in the morning for a couple of hours. But, um, but Derek seemed to wake up and get on with what he wanted to do. There was no other path. Mm. It was a focused energy. People then say to me, well, he must have been impossible to live with. And I say, well, no, actually, Derek was a very kind a uh, straightforward man with a lot of time for other people, although he had a tendency, of course, to talk about himself because that's what he was most interested in doing. And he was very interesting indeed. So um, I shared a student flat with him in 1962-3. We then went to... Then he got his place at the Slade. We went to different art schools. I decided to give up medicine. Derek never persuaded me to give up medicine or said, you should do it. He was very careful. I, but he was instrumental in, in a way that, that I was... When we had that student flat, he moved in a great sort of art apparatus, <laughs> uh, an, e an easel, lots of oil paint, lots of paintings in progress, rather leaden, olive green, romantic landscapes. And looking at the painting, Philip, that you've just showed, the transition over quite a long period of time, I mean, eight or nine years, to the, you call them utopian, mm. uh, the linear landscapes, mm. there was quite, it's quite a move from what he, what he was doing when he was a student at King's. He went to the Slade. I went to the Central. I write in my piece, they were both deeply conservative art schools. Mm. Art schools at that time were in a fix because in 1959 there'd been a show of 
uh, New American Painting at, at Tate. And when you look at the list in the Tate archives of the shows that happened during the 60s of Gorky and de Kooning and David Smith, um, these were the abstract expressionist days for sure, but they were enormously influential. So people in art school, students and teachers, half the staff just wanted to talk about New York City and half the staff wanted to talk about sitting in the life room for hours on end, (laughs) measuring every inch of the model. Um, uh, And then going back as well to what you were talking about um, with the explosion in 1972, which, of course, is well after the Slade, Mm. and, and we both showed at the Listen Gallery in 1970... When you were talking about, uh, so I think you were talking about art being siloed, already at the Slade, Derek had written a manifesto, Mm. which was complaining about the fact that the arts were too separated in this country. I mean, this is in about 1966, seven, something like that. Um, And I, I thought from that point onwards, it was sort of inevitable that Derek would develop into a kind of more collaborative artist, mm. which is what you've been talking about. Mm. I was also very interested in your talking about Derek and the land because I was reminded in Modern Nature about his first colouring book, which was... Uh, it wasn't a colouring book, but he coloured on it anyway, <laughs> which was uh, of plants, which yeah. was when they were stationed... The, the Jama family was stationed mm. in northern Italy. Mm. And Derek describes how he drew plants on the book of plants... Mm. Um, and then there were there were gardens along the way, nothing like Prospect Cottage. No, no. And it's so um, moving, reading pro, um, Modern Nature, yeah. how much of that is immersed in that mm. extraordinary place. Mm. So to go back, the other thing that I wrote about was about the, the extraordinary Thameside Studios and about these kind of spaces, social and art production spaces and then film production spaces that Derek had with Peter Logan on the on the banks of the of the of the River Thames. In Bankside I was the third member of, of that. We all had massive studios and I write about uh, a Christmas party that we gave, if you want a story. Yeah, yeah, go, um, go, go. Which uh, there must have been about fifty people at it. And I don't know how he did it, but Peter set up a field kitchen in his studio and we had watercress soup and turkey and Christmas pudding. We lit Derek's studio with candles. We bought flowers from Covent Garden, so Narcissi, the studio spot. We bought wine from Berry Brothers in, in St. James's. I don't know where, why, how, we, how we had the money um, to do that. And we had a, a, Derek and I sat at either end of the table, we had a walkie-talkie to decide on when we should change the course, is it time to clear those dishes, so on and so forth. And they were amazing times, and afterwards we played charades, and there was a, 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 an overwhelmingly sort of dominating woman called Vera Russell, who was, God rest her soul, I mean, she was marvellous, and she started something called The Artist Market. And... She did, as a, as a shroud, rule Britannia, and the rest of us were waves. <laughs> and uh, so we had about 30 or 40 us pretending to be waves. And, and Vera, everyone guessed it in an instant. Mm. It's in the book. <laughs> the story is in the book. Um, Your I essay is really beautiful. Thank you. Uh, it's a really beautiful essay. 
Um, I, I, like, I like what you say about his um, relationship to the Thames. You're yes. kind of this kind of energy that he almost gets by the wharf. The energy water. was continuous, mm. and he uh, beachcombed the Thames mm. and made the plastic capes mm. with uh, all the all the objects he found. I mean, Derek was impatient. He wanted his own work and the work of others to proceed at a pace mm. which he was incapable of, we were incapable of, possibly. <laughs> um, he was just a fount of energy. I write about the fact that when I first met him and he was doing that degree, history of architecture was taught by Nicholas Pevsner. <laughs> so he, um, Derek learned a lot about the buildings of London. Mm. And... He would charge off down the street telling... Uh, he didn't even look over his shoulder to know if you were following him, telling you about this building and the facade there was better than that one and that architect had gone off at that point in uh, 1850 or something. You know, he, he stored up everything. He was a repository, in a sense, of information and opinion. And it interests me a great deal to see how things have gone since I... We never parted company, but we drifted apart very in very different lives, really, from the sort of mid-70s onwards. And it interests me now, and we were talking about it a little bit earlier, about his, his legacy, because it's grown and grown and grown, and you were all saying, this is extraordinary, it's so wonderful that this has happened. And, and I was saying, well, I'm slightly bemused by it, because... Uh, reading the, through the billboard promised land. I think it's a very crowded story. Mm. It's repetitive. It's wonderful too. And so you were saying about why now it has such appeal mm. and such relevance. I picked up the climate change mm. and I love the wreck of civilizations mm. in it. Mm. Um, and that this was prescient and foreboding. And that was wonderful. And it's, it's a wonderful story. Mm. I think everyone okay. may read this now with the word beachcombed in mind. This is a beachcombed story. As Philip said, everything that he saw ends up arrayed in it, like some of the late alchemical pieces, wonderful arrangements. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Um, we also have an exceptional opportunity now to ask questions of the repositories of knowledge who are here. I believe Gareth has volunteered to be the microphone. So please raise your hands. Uh, and with, there will be opportunities to raise glasses as well. But for the moment, raise your hands for any questions 
just a very, very <clears throat> practical question. Thank you so much. That was so inspiring. I was wondering, what is the situation with his Super 8 films? What is the situation with yeah, the Super Yeah, because they are so difficult to... Difficult to... See. I mean, with Luma, I mean... I... Ah, well, I think they are going to be um, archived <coughs> at Luma and made more easily accessible digitally. But the, I don't know what the time scale is for that, but I know that James Mackay is, is yeah. on it. <laughs> I don't know if you know any more. Uh, no, Amanda, do you know what the state is that with? Derek Jarman left all of the films to, to James Mackay, his film producer. And um, James made an arrangement with Luma Foundation who restored um, the films. Mm. And they built um, an archive in their new building in, in Arles. Um, and the plan, as far as I know, J James um, works with them, is employed by them. And as far as I know, that they will be, it, it's, it's going to be a resource yeah. really for, for his films. So, and when I, I represent the, the estate with paintings, so James and I work together um, on all the exhibitions. So it, it does work very well from that, uh, from, from my perspective. But I, I'm aware that a lot of people want to see the film. So <laughs> they're working on that. <laughs> that that yeah. energy and impatience yeah. is among the viewers as well. But yeah. film archiving is a unfortunately slow process. But hopefully we'll be back here, yeah. perhaps for a screening and a launch of the digital restorations. Um, Declan, you had a... Oh, well, on the, on the subject of films, just um, on the back of what, Michael, you were saying, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how Jarman used to screen the films, like The Wizard of Oz and some of the Super 8s with the music. And I did, Could you tell us a bit about that? A, 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 just a little bit. What yeah. I was telling you about was when... Um, sorry. Was, was about... I taught at Wimbledon uh, School of Art and I tried to get... Uh, artists in who I thought were good artists and interesting. I, so I got Derek, obviously. Um, I didn't ask him to go in the, in the studios and do studio tutorials, but <laughs> he showed Super 8s. I'm sorry that I can't remember which ones they were. And he projected them in the lecture theatre, which was absolutely chock-a-block. And the whole time that they were being projected, he walked back and forwards in front of the screen, talking to the audience non-stop. <laughs> um, so it, it put film in a very different place yeah. as, a, as a, his own films as well. Um, and it was nothing to do with modesty or I don't care about these anymore, so I'll walk in front of them. It was just the energy of the moment mm. that he did that yeah. uh, and people remembered it. Other questions or observations or invocations? Or memories. James Norton, I think, has a memory. James yeah. Norton, of course, worked on The Garden and Edward II. James, it would be wonderful to share that, that time with Derek with us now. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I, the, the first job I ever had in film was working on The Garden, and uh, it's all been downhill since then. But I was... Uh, I was uh, uh, Philip promotes me. <laughs> Above my pay grade as associate producer, I was a runner to start with, basically. Um, and um, uh, picking up on what you were saying about Andy Warhol, um, I first met him because I was at film school, and we had to go and interview um, a film director that we preferably one that we admired. And a friend of mine suggested, "Why don't we talk to ask Derek Jarman?" So I wrote to him, and Derek invited us down to Dungeness to go and meet him. And we got there and said, "Well, why?" 
why did you agree to meet us? And he says, oh, I say yes to everybody. So, uh, Andy Warhol always said you should say yes to everybody. So, so I've got to thank Andy really, that philosophy for that. Really. Um, and just being in very, that very lowly position, um, I, I was struck by, well, the, I was a great fan of his anyway, and it was a wonderful film to work on because it was such a visionary experience. He set up these set pieces and all his collaborators, his his gang, his crew, as you put it, um, all had their creative input, and he was just—he was kind of the ringmaster um, of these things. And, and he um, set down in these wonderful books that he wrote his scripts in, which are beautiful works of art in themselves. The scenes that he wanted to set up, and um, his 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 um, collaborators would get to work on it, and they'd be buzzing around the garden and the sand dunes and um, with their Super 8 cameras, and um, Derek would make um, something wonderful of it, and he. But he was so inclusive; he would talk to me and to anyone and ask us what we thought of what was happening, and uh, and involve everybody. And um, but um, yes, the, the, it, was, it was a magical time, and the result was these wonderful magical objects, which still retain their power to delight us now. I think. Mm. Thank you. I love that. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna, I love that we were talking about analog age. That Howard Sudi said that one point he said to uh, Derek when he was staying at Dungeness, "You have to go and buy a computer." Derek, you know, this is the new computer age. So he persuaded to send Derek into wherever the nearest place was, and he came back with a pen. <laughs> <laughs> was it a, a really nice? It was pen? a really nice yeah. pen. Yeah, it was a really nice. And there are some wonderful facsimile images that Hal Sparrow have included so you can see the the oratic magic of, of that handwriting. It is from a, a copper plate from another yeah. age, isn't it? We had a lovely event here with Keith Collins and he brought Derek's he brought Derek's actual journals and handed them round the, the audience. <laughs> well, that was an example of Derek's generosity, mm. you know, through Hilly Beast, you know, I and mean, it's just it was yeah. Uh, I love the fact that the journals that I hadn't really looked closely, he wrote in pencil first and then he went over them with that wonderful copper plate sort of italic script. Wow. I think Amanda was saying, was it, who is it? Was, who was saying, was it James? It was saying, James McCoy was saying that he wouldn't let anyone see him writing in a way. It was all very... Um, oh, it was... Um, no, again, it was uh, Keith told me it was okay. more about the paintings, oh, um, right. the black paintings which he painted in the cottage and... Um, and Keith said it was very private activity um, when he was, um, I don't know if you're all familiar with the paintings, um, sticking the objects on and, and then um, smashing the glass with all these different objects. And, and Keith said sometimes he cast spells over them. Mm. And, but he would not let anybody near him. And Keith, you know, told, told this story where he was peeping at him through the, the window, you know, and Derek ran out, was furious, you know, even with Keith. So, yeah. <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry to you, James, because you got foisted upon before. But I wanted to ask, was there like any difference with Derek's directing on like The Garden versus Edward II, which is a bit more formal? Um, yes, because it was um, Edward II was, was what well, it was scripted. It was all filmed in one studio. Um, so it was it was much more it was kind of garden was planned with different set pieces, but it was kind of make it up as you go along and let's see what happens um edward the second was much everything was much more professionally um conventionally scheduled as it was but there were kind of planned 
Um, well, there were, there were sort of surprises and interruptions which delighted Derek a great deal and which upset the producers, like Peter Tatchell and Act Up sort of bursting into the studio and, um, and trying to out Cliff Richard, who was <laughs> rehearsing in the studio next door, and um, things like that. So there was still an element of that sort of beautiful anarchic spirit um, that came out of it. So, yeah. But he was, um, he was perfectly capable of directing in a very conventional way when he needed needed to but he also liked to like um s create situations in which magical things could happen as well in different kinds of films do we have time for one more yeah, or one shall one. we conclude yes, with the phrase beautiful situations where beautiful magical yeah. things yeah. happen one more question i just wondered oh, if anybody um like to say more about um energy and maybe fire but mm. particularly energy because it struck you said some lovely things already, um, but it seems that's vital to his arts, and it's vital to all our arts. But it's not something that gets much talked about yeah. contemporarily. Mm. Contemporarily, anyway. Could, could I add to the the frame of energy um, something we haven't touched on, which is the part of the energy of through the billboard promised land without ever stopping is the energy of friendship. And of, of tender care yeah. between men. Um, and that seems very much entwined with the energy. Uh, as Michael said, he was someone who had time for and was curious about other people and made Philip, as you were saying, this kind of gang. Mm. So I'm, I'm really interested in that connection between this energy, this clearly like self-driven, mm. but also this community making and friendship and, and love mm. as well. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, when you read the story, you kind of, you can't really stop yourself because the energy of the language repels you forward. And I think one of the things that I, um, that draws me to Jarman's work more generally is that he seemed to have, I don't know if energy is the right word, but he kind of did what he wanted within, within the confines of the things that were possible. He, he kind of said, you know what? Somebody doesn't quite like the way I'm doing this. I remember somebody telling me that they told him not to have like black drapes in Wittgenstein. And he was just like, you know, I'm just going to do it anyway, because it was what he wanted to do. And that kind of conviction, I guess, maybe energy, conviction, desire to kind of follow through on something, even though others around you aren't necessarily doing it, not following the path of somebody like Warhol, for example, who was being very successful, and not necessarily being upset about not being as successful as Warhol, but, but kind of just mm. continuing that vision. And yeah, you're right, energy, energy doesn't, doesn't get talked about as much. And the la I think the, a lot of the energy resides in the language as you read. Um, and that, that phrase, the poetry of fire, mm. I think often gets connected to the idea that we can think of cinema as the poetry of fire, because it's like language put through um, the magic lantern. But I think also we can read it the other way, and Jarman encourages us to think about language as both luminous and opaque. And often we go through our lives thinking that language is this thing where we communicate and we talk and we know what we mean. But, but when you read Jarman, you don't always know what he means, and you don't always know what the language is doing. And that energy of ambiguity and uncertainty and even confusion sometimes, I think is, it like wakes you up. And I think that is also the poetry of fire in the language, not just the visual imagery. Um, again, I don't really know if I've answered your question. I think that's why he liked punk. 
because it, yeah, it was stirring things up. Things become sort of disruptive. Yeah, and 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 uh, because punk was so in- inclusive in its best form, you know that that it, it you know it, it politicised me and it, you know, it was, had a really big effect. Um, and there was a lot of criticism from sort of punks, sort of people regarded it as a sort of a, almost a sacrosanct movement that they felt Jubilee was a kind of commercialised a sort of commercialization of it because it seemed, you know, Vivian Westwood was very critical, critical of it. Um, and in retrospect, when you look at the film now, it's, 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 it's actually, it's probably my least favorite Derek John, but it's also in the map, almost the most interesting in a way. Sort of, he was such a paradoxical person and he, mm. read, I, that's why I love the super eight so much is, is that they have, he still has the control, the editorial control, the fact that his finger falls across the lens in Journey to Avebury. Um, the fact that, you know, it's, it's really the product of that time that Michael was talking about. Um, because things do become complicated by, unfortunately, by, I mean, because he starts making pop videos. He makes great pop videos for Pet Shop Boys and Marianne Faithful and The Smiths. But, you know, in, in a way, I wonder whether he's sort of lost his way a little bit. You know, that the, the commercial demands of film, which was now he, became, he was being seen as a part of this British new wave of direct directors, you know. Um, and so he was being sort of co-opted a bit like that. And that's why I think modern nature, when it came out, suddenly like pulled you up and made you think, mm. no, this is, he's much more than this person who's become as little bit sort of not ubiquitous, but sort of, you know. Um, and also the, the the way he was sort of canonized, I don't mean the literal canonization by the participant but the way he was met like Oscar Wilde, like Newark had, he was he was adopted by the middle classes because he was sort of naughty and but sort of acceptable because mm. he had a garden. <laughs> because he had a garden. Can't be all bad. It's you true. know. Yeah. And it's really that's what happened. Absolutely. You know. Um, and in a way, Dungeness, Dungeness is one of his greatest works. Mm. And it's a living work. But you know, Derek wanted that house burnt down after he died. Yeah. He wanted everything to be. He wanted everything to go. Keith asked me to steal the only copy of A Finger in the Fish's Mouth from the <laughs> British Library. And it's probably to my great shame that as someone who is an archivist, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And he said, tell me how. I'll wear a big coat. <laughs> Uh, I wondered, well, maybe to come back to your question, maybe you could also share your thoughts. So just, I kind of wasn't quite sure how to frame when, when I was writing the relationship between the king and um, mm. John the Valet and who go off on this journey because the relationship is, is it's not clear. They're obviously friends, um, mm. but there's also, it's the king and his valet. So there's like a, there's a class dynamic there as well. Um, but also it's really hard to read it without thinking of the intimacy that is there. And obviously mm-hmm. intimacy and, and queer intimacy exists between, between friends as well as lovers. Um, but I, just as you brought up the idea of the way in which Jarman made community and friendships beyond kind of maybe what we would expect in conventional boxes of relationships, whether you were thinking of something when you were kind of asked the question about the community of the story and the kind of gang of friends. It's like yeah. a gang of, it's a gang of like, 
people who at the end of the story, I don't know, it doesn't really ruin the story because there's a gang of them and they all come together and they listen to the stories of the journey. Um, and, you know, speaking to the kind of collaborative nature of his filmmaking and the way that he made the garden. You know, Dharma did do a lot of the gardening, but in, if you read the diaries, loads of other people did loads of labor. <laughs> you know, carried stuff from, from the shoreline, made the sculptures, kind of did the, you know, did the, um, not the brickwork, uh, the poem on the side of the, you know, it was like a huge collaborative effort. So I think it should really be like, at some point he calls them the Dungeonettes. Uh, so it should be like the Dungeonettes garden rather than Derek Jarman's yeah. garden. Mm. Um, and I guess on that note, I also just want to thank Jess and Gareth for their inclusion of so many people and Theo and Rory and Robert for all of the efforts that have gone into this because it could have, it could have continued to sit in the archive and not, and not be accessible. And, and I just wanted to thank them both for inviting me to do it, but to just for the success that you've made this um, short piece of fiction. So, um, yeah, thank you for your collaborative effort in the spirit of uh, John's yeah, yeah. work. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Thank you to everyone at the LRB as well for yes. collaborating on this event and on the podcast, which also means that you don't just have to be in London. Um, we're able to be here to uh, enjoy this. Um, this seems like a good place. I think we, we probably need to wrap up now formally. Of course, signings are an option and available with Michael, Philip and Declan, if you would like to take advantage of that. Please do also, um, obviously, do pick up a copy of The Seed, published today by The Tate with Philip's essay absolutely anchored in Derek's experience of the marine and the coastal. Um, so very, very good synchronicity there. Um, as Philip mentioned, Keith Collins was in, in this very room um, with an earlier event. It was the last public event that he did before his very sudden and untimely death. The book is dedicated to Keith and his memory. So that is important to say, I think, and to draw attention again to the, the charge of this particular place, this particular um, operation. Um, some of you will know the work, um, the incredible pioneering gay film Nighthawks by Ron Peck and Paul Hallam. Very sadly, Ron Peck died yesterday in oh. London. Um, very, very disturbing and very, very sad news. Um, he, of course, was a good friend of Derek's. Derek is in the film Nighthawks. Mm. Um, so we dedicate this event now to, to, to his memory, to Ron Peck's memory. Please do find Nighthawks mm. on BFI DVD and Blu-ray if you haven't seen it. It's an incredible pioneering film which absolutely speaks to the legacy and lineage that we've been celebrating here tonight. There are more events coming, of course, uh, through the rest of the month. Details on the board here. I'm delighted to be back on the 24th with the great Wallace Shawn of my dinner with Andre fame. He'll be here, special trip exclusively from New York to be with us on the 24th for his collection of essays. Very much a maverick spirit in the vein and spirit of Derek Jarman as well. So thank you very much indeed for coming. But before you go anywhere, fill up a glass of wine, come to the signing table. Please do thank for incredible navigation and insights. So Maya and wonderful contributions on the page. And, of course, tonight, from Michael Ginsburg, Declan Whiffin, and Philip Hall. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.